0: I'm Sasha Ann Simons. If you haven't noticed the presidential election season, well, it's already started. It's
1: time to finish the job. Finish the job. I am tonight announcing my candidacy for president of the United States. We are more than ready for a new generation to lead us into the future. I'm running for United States president to revive those ideals in this country. I'm announcing that I'm running for the presidency of the United States. I feel I have a moral, a religious, and a patriotic duty to give back to a country that's been so good to my family and to me.
0: That's right. Election Day is a year and a half away. So what's the state of our democracy and how can we strengthen it? In about 20 minutes, we're going to talk to Eric Liu author of the book, You're More Powerful Than You Think, A Citizen's Guide to Making Change Happen. He's got some great tips on how we can work together to build a society with more civic engagement. But first, we are joined by Will Howell. He is chair of the political science department at the University of Chicago, also director of the school's Center for Effective Government. Today, WBEZ, the Sun-Times, and the Center for Effective Government, we are kicking off a brand new series. We are calling it the Democracy Solutions Project. Will, so good to have you back on the show.
2: It's so good to be here, Sasha.
0: So this election, as I said, 18 months away. And to me, that sounds like, oh, we've got lots of time. But by the looks of how things are going right now, that day, I feel like it's going to come quicker than we think.
2: It's going to come quicker than you think, that's for sure. These things pick up steam, and there's a kind of breathless quality to um, campaigns. We A whole lot of horse race coverage, a whole lot of who's high, who's low in the polls. And I think part of our effort here as part of this series is to ground the discussion going forward, to take advantage of this moment, to think more deeply about democracy. So it isn't yeah. just about who's in front and who's lagging, but where are we in a in a grander scheme of
0: things? Breathless is such a good word there, mm-hmm. for sure. So when we go beyond the day-to-day politics and, and the announcements, like we just heard of candidates who are saying, I'm putting my hat in the ring in this race, we know that there's a bigger conversation to be had here uh, about our institutions and about our democracy in this country. Would you say that the state of democracy is strong right now? How Um, would would you rate it?
2: How would I rate it? Um, I guess I'd use two words. I'd say partial and diminished. Partial insofar as it's worth remembering that our democracy, um, since the nation's founding, has only attended to, over the broad course of American history, to a narrow set of interests. Women have only had the right to vote for just over 100 years. It wasn't until the 64 and 65 Civil Rights and Voting Rights Acts that that black Americans were incorporated into the larger polity. Um, and so our partial, first word. Second word is diminished mm-hmm. in that I think really since over the last decade, the levels of engagement and the distrust and um, and the lies and the coarsening of our discourse and the polarization have reached a level in which it's really hard to get our bearings in order to have the serious-minded conversations that we need to have in order to attend to our democracy. Mm-hmm. Um you know, our institutions withstood the Trump presidency, that's true, but we're also on our heels and there's a lot of work to do.
0: Now, I'm Canadian, and I remember just being saturated by U.S. programming while living in Canada. And one thing that struck me and strikes me even more now that living here is constantly hearing political leaders talk about things like, you know, we live in the best country in the world. Mm. We live in the richest nation in the world. You know, this is the most powerful. We're the leaders of the free world. What do you make of all that rhetoric?
2: Well... There's a lot of liberty for a good number of people, and there's a great deal of wealth in this country, and there's a great deal of influence on the international um, the international scale. Um, all that is true. There are things to be proud of. Um, there's also uh, a lot of failure, and I think it's worth taking um, the proper measure of that failure when you think about how much we spend on healthcare relative to what the healthcare outcomes that we have as a country. When you think about um the The coherence of our immigration policy when you think about rising levels of inequality between the rich and the poor, there are real profound problems that our country faces, and we struggle not just in the face of those problems but even to get you know to find the leverage we need in order to make our way forward mm. so um yes, let us be proud let us um let us love our country. it is an act of love of our country to want to set to work on these problems and to and to think seriously about the deeper institutional reforms that are needed in order to make our way forward.
0: So to that end, right now, what are the biggest threats to democracy in the U.S.?
2: There are a variety. There are concerns about the health and well-being of our elections. There are concerns about misinformation and disinformation. Um, to my mind, I would lift up a couple. I would lift up the rise of populism, which um, has taken hold in our national politics and has really taken hold of one major American party, the Republican Party. Um, which represents a distinct threat to democratic, small d, democratic institutions, um, and creates a space wherein anger and disaffection are fomented, and it becomes really hard to roll up our sleeves and set to work on um, improving our democracy as populism Mm -hmm. takes hold. I'd say that's one. And the other one that I would point to is one that I alluded to just now, which is um, the failure of governments, plural, to solve problems. We, we learn to live with our problems. That's true at the national level. That's mm-hmm. true here in Chicago. So you're talking
0: about all levels here?
2: All levels, for sure. And, and we've got to find ways of attending to the impediments to problem solving, to thinking about how do we actually make headway on the very real problems that that we face, because what happens over time is in the face of that failure there's a growing segment of the public that just sort of throws up its hands and says what's the point of the engagement like mm-hmm. what's the point of making the investment and then when somebody like a populist steps forward and says you know forget those parties and those institutions look to me to be your savior um, those kinds of appeals start to resonate and that that is the way to lose a democracy
0: some people see the the growing disconnect between the Supreme Court and the public polling as as a major concern. Uh, There's a recent poll that showed that more than half the nation overall disapproves of how the court is doing its job. What do you think?
2: Um, It's quite clear that the composition of the current Supreme Court does not represent the uh, interests of or the ideological leanings of the broader population. That's quite clear. Um, it's worth then backing up the question and say, how did that come to be, right? Why do we have this particular um, uh, composition? And it's worth then reflecting upon and thinking about reforms mm-hmm. to nominations to the Supreme Court. I'll say the rise of what I would call minority rule, that is the extent to which some subsets of the American public lay claim to broader institutions. The, 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 the Senate is a it rewards is, is profoundly anti-democratic insofar as every state, regardless of its population, has exactly two representatives. And it turns out that there's a big, um, small state advantage for one particular party, which then means there are instances, as there was through the first couple of years of the Trump presidency, wherein the Republicans may have a majority of the seats um, within the Senate while representing a decided minority of the American population. Yeah. So this is a general phenomenon as a real challenge.
0: We live in this nation as well, where millions of people from one party don't believe that the guy who won the White House from the other party actually did it legitimately. So misinformation and and disinformation, I would say, are also big concerns here.
2: For sure. Um, And they work in a couple of ways. One is the lies and the disenchantment um, that follow from the lies, right? This sense that everything is broken. Why participate in, the, um, in these elections when it's all rigged? That, that leads to a degradation of the health and well-being of our democracy. There's another piece, though, that's worth lifting up, which is that in order for our democracy to take hold, it's really important that people within their parties hold their elected officials, that is, the people who represent their views, to account. And when you believe that the other side is regularly cheating and that the other side is extreme relative to where you are, then the misbehavior that you observe within your own party, you're less likely to call out because, yeah. shoot, it's just a fight over power at the end of the day, right? That's ultimately what it is and better my guys than the opposition. Um And so these lies do a lot of – part of another way that the lies work in terms of degrading degrading our democracy is it reduces the probability that within parties that like-minded folk will hold each other to account. And when that falls apart and all we have are these kind of um, cross-partisan wars, we're we're in real trouble.
0: How do we explain this unprecedented scenario that's playing out right now too where we've got a former president who's been indicted and is going on trial next year – and that former president's actually running again.
2: It's really something. There, there, there are the indictments. There's the January 6th insurrection. There are a lot, the lies surrounding like how um, is the that 2020 possible? election. How is it possible? He has a lot of support. That's ultimately what it is, right? It's that he has a tremendous amount of support and a significant number of members of his own parties are willing to accommodate him. Um, and they aren't calling him out. Um, and he has weaponized the efforts to um, hold him to account as part of a larger narrative that takes the form of everything is broken, right? The the federal government and and the mainstream you know rhinos um, within the Republican Party um, are they've all sold a, they've all sold out. The true Americans, yeah. Um, and that's really uh, that's really a problem if we're mm. going to have a meaningful and a serious minded conversation across difference and how to attend to. Um, the profound challenges that we face.
0: So there's another threat our democracy faces right now, which is the the rise of right-wing extremist hate, right? Um, I, I want to hear your thoughts on how you think that's going to shape the 2024 election. I'm going to give you some more context. We've seen uh, both advances and setbacks in the in the fight against American white supremacists, anti-government, other violent right-wing groups in recent years. Now, according to the Brookings Institution, the number of deaths from terrorism and other extreme forms of violence that's been low, but uh, violent rhetoric and threats that's becoming normalized in everyday politics, as we've kind of talked about. So, talk about how you see all of those trends shaping next year's election.
2: Um, I'd say that extremism, violent extremism, um, is actually an enduring feature of our politics. That that isn't something that's altogether new. The lament that. I have, frankly, is is that at the at the center of the political distribution, um, there isn't much accommodation of difference. There isn't um, uh, discipline within the parties in order to marginalize those extremist voices. Those extremist voices have been around for a very very long time. Um, and that what you see with the uh, January sixth insurrection is the kind of mainstreaming of those kinds of claims, mm-hmm. and the accommodation of a larger party to the narratives that are lifted up by those extremist voices. That's of real that, that's of real concern. But I don't think we should think that 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 you know uh, right wing extremism is entering. Um, onto the scene for the first time in 2024. It's been around for a very long time.
0: So let's jump into possible solutions here, Will, or what we've been calling antidotes to some of the challenges that we just laid out. So some of the ideas come from academia, others, uh, we're looking at grassroots organizations, cities, states, other countries, right?
2: Sure. I mean, there are lessons to be learned by institutional innovations that happen at the local and the state level, just as there are lessons to be learned by looking abroad at the struggles that. Other countries have faced in meeting the threat of populism. Um, and But the big theme here, a big theme, is to think about institutional reforms. I mean, when you when we want to write our politics, part of the game is trying to elect the right kinds of people, people who are committed to democracy. Mm-hmm. That's for sure true. Um, but there also is work to be done in thinking about the architecture, the scaffolding of democracy, and mm-hmm. to the extent that we're having a hard time, we struggle to speak meaningfully across difference, to accommodate um, difference, and, and to think about how do we meaningfully meet modern challenges? Um, part of the work that has to do with is is rethinking the institutions that we've inherited um, in light of the challenges, the modern challenges that we face today.
0: So we, we don't have great voter turnout in, in the US. One of my producers was telling me about how there's mandatory voting in Australia, which I hadn't heard of before. Um, experts there are saying that it, it leads to a, just a much more representative and responsive democracy in that country do we maybe need to rethink the way that we vote in America?
2: We for sure need to rethink how we vote. I mean, I think that the the lessons that come out of Australia are terrific insofar as they're very minor um, fines and people can waive them if they so choose um, if uh, for, for failing to vote and that people can cast empty um, blank ballots if that's what they so choose. And yet the turnout there is much higher and there's a greater level of um, an enhancement of systems of accountability there in light of, and the, the, most of the evidence shows, in light of this particular innovation. There are also conversations about changes to voting rules. Um, how do we count the votes? Things like ranked choice voting is something that we could think about. Um, it doesn't have to be first-past-the-post majority, um, plurality winners, excuse me, um, that, that that have a variety of problems downstream when you think about strategic mm-hmm. voting and the rise of extremism. Um, and then also efforts to just make it easier to vote. So the simplest way to make it easier to vote is to have an election day, to think about matters of election timing. We hold elections all throughout the year on, you know, not just the first Tuesday of November in even years, but, you know, in, 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 in April on, on an odd Thursday in an odd year. And, and what do you know turnout is remarkably low during those periods. We can rethink the timing of elections as well.
0: So as we get deeper into the 2024 campaign season, what are you going to have your eye on?
2: Um, I'm going to have my eye on a couple of things. One is my hope for our series is that what we have our eye on is this concern about democracy, to think about what does it mean to improve, to strengthen democracy, and how might we make the most of this period of heightened interest in politics in order to shift our attention to the need for a variety of solutions. Because there's no one solution. There's no magic bullet here. There's lots and lots of solutions at all levels of government that we need to be paying attention to. And the other... One, can I throw out one more? Oh, please. Fate of the Republican Party. That's a big one that's being played out. I think there's mm. a big question mark about what Republicans are going to stand for, who's going to be at the helm. We need to keep our eye on that.
0: We've been talking with Will Howell, director of the University of Chicago Center for Effective Government at the Harris School of Public Policy. Always a pleasure, Will.
2: It's so good to see you. you.
0: And if you want to hear more about big ideas for rethinking how politics and government work in our city, search for our Reimagined Chicago series over at WBEZ.org. Now, that's a recent project where we, again, teamed up with Professor Howell and the Center for Effective Government. and We examined how our institutions could work better for Chicagoans. We looked at city government, public safety, education and community investment. Up next, one way to ensure that our democracy will thrive is civic engagement in the ballot box and in our communities. So, we're going to check in with Eric Liu. He's the author of several books about what we can all do to make a difference in society. That is just ahead here on Reset. Sasha Ann Simons here on Reset. Now, as we mentioned, we are kicking off a new series called the Democracy Solutions Project. Over the next 18 months, we'll discuss some of the threats to democracy in the U.S., as well as ways that we can strengthen democracy. Now, the project is a partnership between WBEZ, our colleagues at the Chicago Sun-Times, and the Center for Effective Government at the University of Chicago. Our next guest has made it his mission to strengthen one of the foundations of a strong democracy, civic engagement. Eric Liu is the co-founder and CEO of Citizen University. That's a nonprofit working to, quote, build a culture of powerful, responsible citizenship across the country. And he is also the author of multiple books and includes his latest, Become America, Civic Sermons on Love, Responsibility and Democracy. Eric, great to have you back.
1: Sasha, great to be with you.
0: So how would you characterize the state of democracy in the U.S. in 2023? Because some are worrying that it's it's really fragile right now. but there's still a lot to be proud of.
1: I, I think you captured it exactly right. It is a it is definitely a both and. Um, there are uh, cracks in the foundation, um, and there are people working to renovate. and It's all happening at the same <laughs> time, and uh, um, you know. And I think, or to use a different approach of a metaphor, you know, there are a lot of challenges uh, in our kind of democratic culture right now. Um, that feel like they're coming from places distant from us and forces greater than us. Um, And at the same time, there are so many people rooted in place and in community in places like Chicago who are just trying to be part of the solution and trying to fix um, whether it's a specific form of uh, engagement, uh, transparency of government, uh, ways to be heard, ways to mobilize and organize people who've been cut out of the process. Um, And I think you know, the, the question for our time is whether this bottom-up renewal uh, can keep pace with the, in some ways, top-down uh, corrosion and erosion of the, um, of the system itself.
0: You've also said that it, it is a legitimate question whether this particular form of democracy that we have here in the U.S., whether it deserves to survive.
1: Well, look, I think one of the things we have to keep in perspective is that as hard as things are right now, um, they are meant to be hard. We are doing something that hasn't yet been done in human history. We are trying to create the planet's first mass, multiracial democratic republic. And no other society has tried to hit all those marks at the same time. And that includes the United States. So for as much as we've professed um, you know, our faith in democracy and the centrality of our constitutional republic as a way of governing ourselves, um, it's only been in our lifetimes that this country has tried both on paper and to an extent in social norms, uh, to actually make that mean, yes, uh, justice for all. Yes, actually, all, all of us are created equal. And, and even during our lifetimes, that's been fitful and uh, nonlinear and sometimes two steps backward with each one forward. And so I think we are putting to the test the question of whether this is possible. And you know, I think that those who are you know losing faith uh, in our system, losing faith in participation at all, Um, my, my plea is to say, don't give up yet. I think we're, uh, we determined by whether we choose to show up right now, whether in fact this is possible. And if we just decide preemptively that, you know what, this game is too rigged. There's no point. Nothing ever changes. Then we just make it so. Uh, and I think that would be uh, a shame on any, under any circumstance, but especially right now when with all the changes in our society, with Mm -hmm. this surge of bottom up power, we actually have a chance to deliver on a promise that's never been kept.
0: So earlier on the show, we were rattling through some of the threats to democracy in our country. Everything from political divisions, we talked about misinformation, um, how institutions like the Supreme Court are structured. Mm -hmm. How do you think more civic engagement can help?
1: Well, a lot of those threats you just described, and they are real, um, and are what I would call structural threats. Um, You know, gerrymandering and um, the ways in which our voting systems Uh, Cut most people out of the process because they are 50 percent plus one first past the post systems rather than, you know, rank choice voting or other kinds of systems that might include many more people and incentivize politicians to speak to many more people. But as important as those kinds of structural reforms are, structural changes like let's put term limits on the Supreme Court so that you don't have the stakes that you have right now um, with every decision uh, and, and the other issues that that institution is facing. As important as structure is, our view at Citizen University and my view just personally is that culture precedes structure. Culture, by which I mean the norms, the values, the habits, the mindsets, the heartsets of how we deal with each other every day, culture is upstream of policy. It, it, if you have a culture that is selfish, short-term, cynical, um, you know, skeptical of the purposes of engagement, mistrustful of others... Um, you know, then you're going to have very narrow uh, parameters and very little room to make structural reform or change Mm. things. But if you have a culture in which people decide, you know what, showing up isn't for suckers, showing up matters. If you have a culture where people think about contribution before consumption and stewardship rather than just taking and service before self, um, then your room for structural change opens up. And so I think civic engagement is not just a matter of, hey, go to your local, you know, city council meeting or school board meeting. Civic engagement is a deeper cultural question of do we see each other as having our fates entwined? Do we show up for each other in all the ways that precede elections and precede structural change? Um, And the more we can foster that kind of culture, I think the better shot we have at having structural solutions to the problems that plague our, our democracy.
0: So if someone out there listening to us right now, Eric, if they want to take steps to ramp up their own personal civic engagement, where do you suggest they start?
1: I think they start literally where they are, um, in their neighborhood, in their community, in their part of Chicago. Um, number one, just think about your place. Um, yes, there's all kinds of things on fire in national politics. And you know, as we head toward the 2024 election, there's a lot of things that you can just doom scroll on social media or just plop yourself in front of cable news and, and get all anxious about. But If you look around and ask, well, what's going on in Hyde Park? What's going on in the back of the yards? What's going on in the loop? What's going on um, in, you know, one neighborhood or another? Um, Then ask yourself, okay, do I understand the map of power in my neighborhood? Who decides things? And I don't mean just who's my alderman or, you know, who, who serves on, who represents me on the school board. I mean, literally, who are the people with clout? Those could be mm. business people. Those could be elders who everybody turns to on the block because they're the ones who have moral authority. Um, they could be young people yeah. uh, who really uh, shape the vibe and the and, and the norms of uh, of your. It's block the time or your of the community.
0: influencer right now. It is, you yeah. know. And I
1: think tuning into who has power in your community and your neighborhood, and then asking yourself, how do I draw myself into that map of power? Right. And to me, the simplest way to do that is to join something. I don't want to make civic engagement seem like some huge mountain to climb. Join a club. Join a club. I don't even care if it's civic or political. Join a gardening club. Join a book club. Join a neighborhood club. Whatever it is, the simple act of joining and rebuilding this atrophied muscle of association, negotiation, dealing with people who are unlike you in some ways, but have come together for some common purpose and have to figure out a common agenda and Mm -hmm. common goals those are all the muscles that have disappeared in American life, and you can't just fix this from the top down with a new president or a new proposal or a new piece of legislation. If we don't have that kind of Tocquevillian um, habits of the heart uh,
0: yeah.
1: of dealing with each other in human scale, um, then nothing's going to last.
0: So, what if they take your advice and they, you know, they line up with these folks that you've you've outlined or join clubs? But they're still having trouble figuring out which issues to align with, right? I've heard yeah. from folks that there are so many pressing issues right now. I can't yeah. choose one. I don't know where to spend my energy fighting for change. What do you say well, to folks the, trying to figure that out?
1: I would say the 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 silver lining in the fact that there are a hundred issues that are urgent and a hundred crises that you can plug into. Um, yes, I get that that kind of scope of options and choice can can freeze you in place. Uh, but the, the upside of it is literally pick anything and you'll be useful. Pick one and just decide, you know what? This doesn't have to be my life's work and my commitment for the next three decades or four decades to to work on issue X, uh, if it's gentrification or if it's homelessness or if it's police, um, you know, uh, community relations or whatever it might be. Um, but just decide, I'm going to pick this issue for the next six, nine, 12 months, and I'm going to get smart on it. I'm going to figure out who works on it. I'm going to join with others to, who want to learn about it. Um, and if over the course of those six, nine, 12 months, you decide, you know what, this is great. This issue is, you know, giving me great focus and I'm passionate about it, then wonderful. But you may also decide after that period of time that, um, okay, I've learned a lot about how to learn a lot on a single civic issue, mm-hmm. but this one isn't my issue. Now I'll pivot to a different one, right? I think to me, um, the, the the idea that there are too many to choose from, I don't know where to choose. Um, I think we can simply bypass by saying pick anything and then just commit to it for a stretch of time so that that becomes the way that, again, you practice, you build muscle. And, you know, democratic self-government participation in our system is a matter of practice. It's not a one and done. It's not like you flip a switch or cast a ballot and call yourself uh, civically capable. This is just like any form of practice whether it's sports, whether it's medicine, whether it's uh, you know art or dance or whatever. You mm-hmm. got to keep on showing up and and figuring out what you're good at and what you want to get better at.
0: Let's talk about your latest book from 2019. It's called Become America: Civic Sermons on Love, Responsibility, and Democracy. Give us a bit more about that and explain what is a civic sermon.
1: Yeah, well, I think um, you know, the backdrop for Why I call the pieces of this book Civic Sermons is that uh, for years now, Citizen University has been catalyzing these gatherings around the country called Civic Saturday. And Civic Saturdays are essentially a civic analog to a faith gathering. It's not church or synagogue or mosque, but on purpose, it has the arc and the flow and the feel of that kind of gathering, but it's about civic life and it's about recommitment to
0: um,
1: our lives as Americans. And so when you come to a Civic Saturday which all happen in different communities, small towns, rural places, big cities, uh, they're happening all over the United States at any given day or any given weekend. Um, We invite people just to show up with strangers, turn to the people next to them and talk about questions that blow past small talk, like who have you let down lately? What are you afraid of in your community? Mm. Um, Who are you responsible for? That kind of open up the heart, right? And then there are readings of texts that are drawn from different parts of the American tradition some known and some not so well-known that you might think of as civic scripture. Mm. Someone gives a civic sermon that helps make sense of these times and tie together the things that people are feeling, the pain, the fear, the loss, the anxiety that it pervades our our civic life and our culture right now and connect that to just what you and I were talking about, Sasha. What's a way that we can do something about that? What are ways that we could join together here in our community, in our place what are some concrete channels where we can show up together and decide we're going to do something, right? And so civic yeah, you, you, Saturdays you've, been,
0: said, you've said civ- it's not civic engagement that we need. You've said it's rather civic religion, right? More of, y- so of a, a change of heart, a change absolutely. of habits.
1: And, and we mean this in a very serious sense. We don't mean religion in the sense of a godly, organized religion, but rather the recognition that democracy is a faith-fueled endeavor, faith not in a deity, but faith in each other, and in the possibility that this system that we've got, this experiment that we've been that we've inherited, could actually work. And as I often say, democracy works only if enough of us believe democracy works. Mm. It's it's that evanescent in a way, right? In some ways, it's a little bit like money. When when uh, when in times of crisis, you suddenly realize that this rectangular green piece of paper that has the number five or twenty or ten on it. Um, only means something to the extent that millions of us simultaneously invest it with meaning, and the minute that that mutual millionfold agreement to invest that piece of paper with meaning evaporates, then you have a financial crisis. Then you have hyperinflation. Then you have, you know, the kinds of uh, the crises that you see around the world. But we're yeah. having that kind of crisis around our um, rectangular piece of paper that's parchment, and that's the Constitution, right? And I think we've got to actually rekindle faith in each other in the system. By showing up regularly to practice it, and so this book, "Become America," captures some of the civic sermons that uh, I delivered over the last few years mm-hmm. at civic Saturday gatherings around the country.
0: Well, I mean, I could talk to you about so much more, Eric, but <laughs> I, I wanna, I, I wanna, I would be remiss if I didn't point out just the sheer sense of discouragement right now, just across the board. A lot of folks are discouraged about the state of our politics, the future of this country. You are so optimistic. Uh, I just want to know what you would what you would say to folks right now feeling down. How do you stay so positive? Leave us with something, some inspiration.
1: Go talk to a young person. That's my my simplest advice. You know, I think about the young people who are involved in the Mikva Challenge uh in Chicago, which you you know well, yes. an organization that is activating high school students uh uh, to learn civics by doing civics, by actually showing up and putting into practice these ideas. And they are coming from neighborhoods where, and communities where they have every reason to be down, every reason to be cynical and skeptical uh, that the system could ever be responsive to them. Uh, and yet they're showing up, figuring out how to change things uh, in their ward, how to change things in their neighborhood, yeah. uh, and how to find their voice literally by learning public speaking and advocacy and so forth. And when you see the kind of Energy and hopefulness. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I and I say it's hope, not optimism, because yeah. hope actually implies agency, right? They they are feeling agency. And young people like that just give me fuel and fire.
0: Talk to a young person. That's Eric Liu, author and CEO of Citizen University. Thank you so much.
1: Sasha, it's been great to be with you. Thank you.